Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So you say we're getting started. Recorded live. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Genesis Science Fiction Radio Show, a service of the BlackScienceFictionSociety.com website. This is your March 16, 2018 edition. I'm trying to think, do we have any holidays? It's like, when is St. Patrick's Day? Anyway, we are live today, and our special guest is Frank Yeager, who is listed, although I'm sure he does a lot more than this, as a... uh, Indie comic writer. He is a black nerd and an educator. So, um, welcome to the show, Frank. Does that mean that you're you're a teacher at this point or an instructor? Yes, I'm actually um, not currently a teacher. I'm at the end of my program. I have to pass the practice too, um, which is a standardized state test that is completely meaningless and all of that good stuff. But you have to pass it in order to get your certification. So, well, um, isn't isn't that also a way for the state to collect some revenue from you too? Oh, absolutely. The test is about $200 a pop. So, uh, you know, and uh, the way it's structured is you have like 120 questions out of a pool of thousands of questions. So you don't really have the correct study material. You can't pass it. So, wow. It's a, yeah, it's it's a trap. All right. Well, I'll keep my fingers crossed for you, man, because most would be a real pain in the butt. You know, uh, they really can because, you know, they, they, they serve two purposes, obviously, is the revenue one, especially if they catch you not passing it the first time. And the other one is it's a, it's a gatekeeper, you know, right. to, keep the rip, to keep the riffraff out, which I, that, I guess that's a good part, you know, when you, when you think you don't want anybody who's not qualified getting through. But right. you and I both know that on occasion unqualified people manage to get through anyway because of whatever circumstances. But that's Many good. Occasions. I mean, yeah. So, and, you know, once you get the certification, are you going directly into teaching? Is that is that kind of like your career path that you're looking at right now? Well, you know, you have to have the passion, and then you have to have the uh, the profit jobs. So the profit job is just to have some money, just to have some steady work. There's always going to be need for teachers. So that's just like what I'm doing to make sure I keep the lights on. But the passion right. is the creative pursuits. The uh, the writing, um, I've done some, some small local indie film stuff. Anything creative with multimedia, I'm all about it. And I would like to get into that and make that what sustains me. But until then, this is what I'll do. Dude, you're just like everybody, every creative out there who's serious about their creative um, endeavors. You know, some people do it, and they're either scared of success or they're scared of failure and they don't really put much into it. But mm-hmm. man, I'll tell you right now, I've been doing computer stuff for so long. I'm sick of it. And it looks like I might, I just might be turning the corner to getting to be more self-sustaining with my writing. Mm. And I'm, yeah. I'm really happy about that. I mean, if, if I didn't have to deporn one more laptop in my lifetime, <laughs> I would be a happy mother. I would be very happy. Yeah, I, I know it, man. 
<laughs> so, yeah, I get, I get the part about having to pay the bills because it, you know, if I could spend 100% of my time just doing creative stuff, I would be a lot happier. And it sounds like you would be too. Oh, absolutely. See, for me, and I think maybe for you too, when your pleasure and your passion becomes your job, it doesn't feel like work. Like, it's not to say that it's not hard or that it's not challenging, but while you have a zeal for it, it makes it a lot easier than that just monotonous day-to-day work you do to make sure your lights stay on. And oh, so yeah. That, yeah, that in itself would just keep you going. So yeah. while I'm waiting to get that certification, I'm, uh, I work in security. So I'm a security chief at a local um, at a local security firm, and, you know, that's fine, but that's not the career. I want to leave no, to another thing no. that makes something else, that leads no. something else, you know, that opens more doors and more doors, and eventually I would like that door to open to my creative endeavors. Yeah, everything else is just a gig. Am I right? Oh, yeah. oh absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Now, where do you live? Where are you calling us from? Alabama, if you're calling us from Alabama. Yeah, I am. Uh, Huntsville, Alabama. And and are you a transplant? Did you grow up there? What's the deal? Oh, born and bred. Alabama, born and bred. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. There's a whole lot of nonsense that people could say about folks from Chicago, too. So, you know, I don't I don't want to get started on that. And And so, I mean, have you spent... It sounds like you spent most of your time there, right? I've done some traveling. Um, I've lived in um, the DMV for um, some time. I've uh, lived in the uh, like Georgia, in the Atlanta area, uh, different small little areas around here, Tennessee, uh, some parts of Georgia. But for the most part, this has been my base. Now, I'm not opposed to traveling and, and going and seeing things, but it hasn't really. My life hasn't taken me to that point yet. Yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, I've been thinking about, you know, I'm I'm a little, I don't know if I'm older than, yeah, I'm a little older than you. But here's the thing. I've, I've been thinking about, you know, kind of where I would settle to retire for about the last mm-hmm. maybe five, six, seven, eight, nine years. And I always wanted to go and retire in St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Mm-hmm. But you know what? They can't clean up after them hurricanes fast enough. For yeah, me. yeah. The grid is and shut down my, too long, man. Yeah, and if my house is, you know, all decked out and I got my generator and I got my bottles of water, maybe even put a well in and stuff like that, basically I'm just, you know, keeping house for the strongest dude on the block if it's not me. Mm-hmm. Right. You know? Right. So I, I really, I've had to rethink my game. And then I thought about, you know, maybe the West Coast, maybe San Diego, maybe around there because the weather's nice and everything else. But then the other part is you have drought or you have mudslides or, you you know, and and not being able to get to fresh water, I have to think about that. You know, and here in Chicago, okay, it's a big city, but we got the Great Lakes all around us. So there's a whole lot mm-hmm. of places, Wisconsin, Michigan, where – it seems like it would be a good place to be, except it gets too damn cold. You know, I'm old. Like in white people years, I'm 189, and I can't take that cold anymore. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, oh, and, I understand that completely. I don't do cold well. My people aren't built for that. No, and, you know, I'm, I, even though I'm half black, half Japanese, you know, I don't recall seeing a whole lot of, you know, snow and ice skating and stuff like that over in Japan either. So... I, I obviously genetically it's not for me. 
Yeah. And somebody just put in the chat room that San Diego is expensive. That's true. Um, I, I would guess that as you get further away from the ocean, it'd be a little cheaper, but then you end up in the desert, and that's a whole other set of problems, you know? So, well, let me tell you this for certain about the South. The cost of living is low. Uh, yes. A lot of people come here to retire, and that's kind of – like if I want to set some roots down, I'd like to set some roots down here, you know, get a wife, have some kids, do the whole thing. You know, the, it's, it's relatively safe, which is crazy because – you know, this is the hotbed for, like, hate groups and all these different racial things. But at right. the same time, right. it's actually a lot safer because – and I was telling somebody else this recently. We have racist people here all throughout the South. But we live sure. here next to each other and have been here for a long time. So the most racist man that you can pass will probably still say good morning to you because we're just used to it. So he may hate your gut in private, and he may fly all the rebel flags in the world, but – we're cordial because we have grown accustomed to living side by side. But I, I go to places like Boston where the hate groups and the people who have the hate mongers, they're very active. They're very violent. They want to, you know, they want to go out. They want to fight. They want to find something. They want to prove themselves. Where here is the everyday life, you know. So um, it, is, it is a very different experience living here than it is, say, living in Maryland, where everything right. to me was just so expensive. So expensive. I was like, why is everything so hot? So the cost of living difference, the social differences, um, you're probably going to have some politicians taking some money from you. That's just going to happen. You know, so there's going to be those kind of scandals here. But for the most part, everybody's just chill. Everybody relaxes, keeps to themselves, and just tries to live life. A lot of people come here to retire, military people, um, especially right. this is, um, a huge uh, technological hub. So we have research parks all through places like Huntsville, uh, Birmingham, Montgomery, stuff like that. So people come here, they make their money, then they retire. Isn't Huntsville where they have space camp? Yes, it's the Space and Rocket Center is here. Um, yeah, which actually, yeah. Uh, it predates Houston. Like, uh, it started Huntsville. A lot of the uh, south is where the um, space programs began, and then they branched uh-huh. out to, say, Houston. So okay. it started in Huntsville, went to Houston. Uh, for World War II, they built the uh, all the rockets that, you know, Fat Man, Baby Boy, all those different things, like all the rocket components. They built those in places like Oak Ridge, Tennessee, very small so, uh, kind of rural, suburban uh, mixture kind of area. So this is a huge technological place, but it's so low profile that you can still, you know, raise a family. Yeah, and I, I will tell you what my fear is about living in the South. Um because you're used to it, you know how the behavior should be. And that doesn't mean you have to act a certain subservient way or anything. But like you said, you live next door to them and you know the customs and you, you know, you're used to what goes on. You know, when you say hello, they say hello back because you're neighbors and that's just right. the way it is. With my stupid ass self, I, somebody would say something to me and I'd say something back and then, it, you know, then it's on. Because in, in yeah. a lot of ways, I don't have the sense of a house plant, and I have a hard time. I think I would have a hard time being able to assimilate. So there's there is that fear. You know, I thought about maybe trying to settle in Florida, but I don't mm. really. You know, I just I don't know. You know, I could just be that that northern colored asshole that racist whites talk about. And, and that's not going to serve anybody either. So I guess. Well, the thing about it is they won't come at you directly. That's not what they do here. Not not directly. Not directly. Okay. The, the thing that racist uh, white people do here 
is talk indirectly to you about other ethnicities. So <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. So like they'll come to me if I'm say you know in a home improvement store, you know, do it yourself place. I'm standing there and building materials, and one guy. This is a story that happened. One guy comes up to me. Uh, some Hispanic men pass by, and they're asking, you know, where to find the backer board. So I point them in that direction. And so I have three uh, white men come stand next to me, and they're kind of like, like I, where I was standing somehow kind of like became the block. And then, like, they all kind of like mounted up next hover, to me, and I'm looking around, around right like, there, yeah. yeah. Right, I'm like, okay. what, what, the, what the hell is happening now? And so they all standing there. They got their arms folded. One guy's chewing dip and stuff. They're kind of, you know, mean mugging these guys as they're going down the, uh, down the aisle. And then one looks at me. And then he says, like, the most um, racist stuff about Hispanics ever. And I'm like, y'all know I'm black, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, did I get lost? Let me turn around. Like, uh, yeah. let me excuse myself. You know, so it's really, um, it's really the indirect stuff, the kind of things that, that uh, per, per, are preceded by things like um, I'm not racist, you know, but, you know, yeah, I'm oh, not yeah. racist, and, but, and then, you know. And then you hear – when they say that, when they start out with that, then you hear the most racist yeah. thing that, yeah. that yeah. you could possibly hear. And that, yeah. Um, so, I mean, but you're there, you, you're used to it, you understand the culture, you know, you're part of the, the neighborhood and everything like that. Let me ask you this, um, you know, at, for all of the things that you do, especially your creative writing and things like that, you know, doing the comic and things like that, is, does any of that kind of culture creep into your creativity or are you able to divorce yourself from the nonsense that you would put up with like that? You know, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm able to, first of all, I will say that I'm able to divorce myself from these thoughts and experiences in my work. However, I don't know if I should have to, I don't know if you should, because I feel like a writer should put himself and his experience, his or her experience into their work. So, I don't want to completely stray away from what I am and what I've done or what I've experienced, but at the same time, I don't want everything to be just about me because I want it to be about the characters and the world and the developments and their stories. But uh, I don't want to negate my own experiences, and, and you know, I want to sprinkle my flavor into the characters and into the world without hijacking the character story that they would have themselves, if that makes sense. Like they should have and their make, own thing. And make- and make that the central premise of your story. Right, right. right. Like in the, I get the, you. The book that I'm doing is a historical fiction, historical fantasy. It's set in the 16th century, and there are some um, there are some racial issues. But since race wasn't really a thing at that point in history, so it was really more about geology, where you were from, you know, your country. You know, you're this okay. sort of country. You, you know, you're from here. You're from here. And so you could have two what we would call black people from different places, and then that would be tension because they're from different places. You would have two uh, European men, you know, from different places, one's Catholic, one's Protestant, and they have tension. You know, it wasn't until about the 17th, uh, not 17th, but 1700s that race largely became like this thing. Like, you know, you are a white man, you are a black man, and because of that we are going to not like each other. Sure, so, sure. You know, while we yeah. have these elements in the book, it doesn't take right. over the book. It's not the main focus of the book. Yeah, you know how I dealt with it? You know, I I, I wrote books uh, about, essentially, uh, the second book of my trilogy talks about, well, the the story starts out during World War II before the Tuskegee Airmen went over to Europe. Mm 
oh, and yeah. then and then has and then chronicles some histo- you know the, the historical things that happen up through the present and into a little mm-hmm. bit into the future. And what I did to prevent myself from writing and coming off like an angry black man was I was just very factual about what went on. Well, see, that's what you have to do, and I hate that because while to to not seem like the angry black man, we have to always keep our cool in in our creativity, in our you know, if we have a passion for an event that happens, some you know, some kind of social event, we can't get angry and talk about it because it's like, oh, he's just an angry black man. So the same kind of phenomenon can happen in writing. So I understand that completely. Yeah. So and and that's that was very important to me because I I did not want to be relegated to that, mm-hmm. you know, or or have somebody go, what does this Japanese dude have about white folks and black? You know, I didn't want that because they just see my last name. So yeah, it's it's kind of hard, and I understand what you're saying about having you have to if you're going to write about reality, and you are because yours is historical, mine is alternate timeline. But mm. if you want to talk about the reality of what goes on, you do have to include the elements of reality that mm-hmm. that that do impinge on your story, that your story, you know, that that have an effect in the story, or are of to even talk about how the characters are dealing with life in that context. So I I right, get what you're right. saying. I mean, because if you want yeah. to make a story about World War One, right? I love the wars. And so um, if I was to make a story about World War One, and I wanted to focus on a black man who, bef- who wanted to join the war before America officially joined the war, so he went across right. the seas to, to join with the French, I would have to adhere to the fact that white people treated him differently in America than they did when he, you know, went across the pond. His yeah, experience well, would be different, you know, his 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 interactions yeah. with people could be different. Maybe they're not different. Maybe they're the same. You know, that would be a part of the story if the character says, oh, well, you know, these white folks are all the same. Or, man, these white folks are real different. Whatever the case is, that's something as a character in that timeline he would have to acknowledge. Yes, because because that's just the reality of the situation. And, when you're, and you're, if you're just writing about reality, you have to put those elements in. Let me ask you this: When you know, when did you get the writing bug? Is this something that was with you at a young age and followed you as you got older, or, I mean, for me, it came late. You know, I I started writing when I was I don't know in my forties, I guess, and and hadn't really given it much thought until I got pissed off and said, you know, I'm tired of hearing about black folks who, you know, or no, hearing about the American lexicon that does not include black folks like me or all the ones that I grew mm-hmm. up. In. That's, especially yeah, on the multicultural level, like being black yeah. and also Asian, like there's nothing. There's like hardly oh. anything there. And it's a huge vacuum, you know, about Absolutely. black people already, but like the multicultural nature of black people even more so, you know, because well, we have a thing in our society. I, You know, within black people, it's whether or not you're black enough. You know, if you're black, and yeah. you're, you oh, know, yeah. Asian oh, or you're black or white, can you pass? Are you light-skinned? How light-skinned are you? You know, are you too dark-skinned? You know, so it's like all these different uh, elements of colorism come into play. And so it's already hard enough for American uh, creatives to deal with black people just in general, but then to try to deal with the subtle nuances of colorism without coming off as, like, cheesy and stuff, it's a very difficult thing. 
Yeah, so, when I when I started to learn how to speak like this, instead of sounding like J.J. Walker when I grew up, that my, people are going, my, pe- yeah, people people are saying, are you trying to sound white? Oh God, how many times have I heard that? And, if I had a I am, you know, and it's like, you know, wh- how stupid are you? You know, first of all, I'm I'm in radio. Do you really think I want my ass parked up in the 1400s on the AM dial for my whole life? Yeah, you dumb, you know. So, so yeah, there, you know. It, Here's the sad thing about our culture, okay? Only black folks could have invented the term haters, you know, and that just says mm-hmm. something very sad about us. And, mm-hmm. and you know, if people want to write in, write in to Jarvis, and Jarvis will pass on your being pissed off at William for having said that. But it is true, you know, because in certain ways, when we hate on each other, it's personal. When white folks oh, hate yeah. on us, it's just the collective. You know, it's just yeah. like business well, as usual. Well, well, yeah, exactly. It's actually just business. It's just, you know, I don't like you because it advances me. You know, it's not I don't like you because I don't like who you are. You know, yeah. and, um, you know, and I'm not saying that the element is not present within white people. It's present within all cultures. But um, people, black people especially, and I, I'll say this, and I, I don't mean to sound um, sound bad about this or anything, but I don't really care as much about what the other races do because it's like black, I am black, black people are my people. So it's like caring about what happens in your home opposed to what right. happens across the street. You know, yeah. I care, I care about, you know, other races in the broad spectrum of things, but I passionately, passionately and personally care about black culture. You know, what's happening, okay. with, you know, how self self image, like how are we looking at ourselves? That's why movies like black Panther, you know, is so important. Like it's this, the, the image training that came with that movie is just like, wow, you can be strong. You know, you have black men and black women, both royal and, and also warriors, all together fighting on a united front, you know, but you also have, uh, quote, unquote, infighting within black folks, but it's kind of like everybody fights. You know, I see, and I see people saying, like, oh, you, you know, you watch that movie and black folks fighting black folks, why y'all so happy about that? You know, but I didn't see people getting mad at Captain America for fighting Red Skull when they're both white. You know, it's like only black yeah. people will come at black people about stuff like that. Like, we just have to be, like, I don't know, like, we're above reproach as we're, we're not human. We can't be fallible. We can't do stuff like that. So that, those are the things that I hate, you know. It's, yeah. um, it, 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 it burns me up to my core when I hear people say things that separate black people. Like, we already have enough division, but you as one of us, shouldn't continue to divide us even more. Well, and, and I, this, I've said this before, um, but one of the things I really, really, I hate about black culture is this pervasive zero-sum mentality where, where somebody will see someone else do well and feel that that person who's doing well has taken money or fame or something out of their oh, yeah. the other person's it's, it's pocket. a crab bucket mentality for sure. Um, especially, oh, now, man. I've experienced that um, more than ever as as I've started to get into this uh, comic book production. So I, okay. to answer your question, I, uh, previously to answer your question, I got into comic book writing um, from a very early age. Now, I will say not officially or professionally, but I have a comic book that I wrote in second grade, you know, and you now know, I just cool. I've always wanted to write. I, I made uh, X Men. X Men is like my one of my favorite franchises, and I hate the movies. They're, they're just so subpar. But that's another story. Um, right. 
They are, it was my favorite series. It talked about civil rights and, you know, the anger and the passion that can come about, you know, your civil liberties being trampled upon. And even from a young age, I understood that. And then on top of that, they put powers and people shooting eye beams and stuff. So I just always loved X-Men. So I was okay. like X-Men fan fiction when I was like in second and third grade, you know, and I've got a picture of like Beast doing some anatomically impossible cartwheel or something like that. I don't know what I was thinking, <laughs> but um, uh, Wolverine is running at something. Or I don't know. A Cyclops is shooting an eye beam. It's going nowhere off the screen. But, you know, I just, I loved it. Um, sure. But I, I've always kind of liked to draw stuff. I'm an artist but I'm a better writer. And that's another thing I had to face, like, in my creative endeavors, to try to focus, because I know a lot of people, especially in the indie circuit, that try to be the one-man show. And there's nothing wrong with the one-man show. I just don't think it's necessary. I think it's kind of time-consuming, like, especially in comics. If you have a guy who's a writer and a guy who's an inker and a guy who's a penciler and a guy who's a letterer, and, like, you, you see the industry standard, and that's how it's done. I don't see a need to reinvent the wheel. You know, I don't right. need, see a need to just be like, well, I'm going to do it all so I can say I did it all. And it's like, well, when it comes down to it, the proof is in the pudding. Somebody's going to look at your book, they're going to pick it up, and they're not going to be like, oh, this art, it, it sucks. But, man, he did it all. You know, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. It, just, it doesn't matter. So um, professionally, I would say I, I, my, this is my first major project, um, and it started about three years ago. Before that, I would do sketches. I had done, like, a comic strip for newspapers and stuff like that uh, for the school that I attended. And uh, it, it was it's always been in me. The bug has been in me. But it wasn't until a few years ago that I decided to go ahead and do something about it. Because I got tired of the misrepresentation. I got tired of, you know, not – I got tired of people who were not us handling our stories. Now, having said that, it doesn't mean that a black person writing a black story ensures quality. But right. there is a unique, uh, unique little subtle and nuances that can is most likely to be picked up by a black creator. Yeah, and the other thing is, is you know there there is a certain amount of uh, of truth that we can a- approach a project like that with that is not so easy for everybody else, you know, for somebody white. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. it's funny because uh, I, I, uh, a friend of mine asked, uh, oh, a few months ago, she joined a, a Google Hangout and she said, you know, um, a lot of people, and she's black, and she said a lot of people who read my work, a lot of whites can't tell my characters are black or can't tell, you know, or, or have a problem with, you know, some of the cultural references. And so, you know, you, you still have to deal with that. And then and that goes to something that happened to me at a Worldcon convention where I was moderating a panel on Afrofuturism. And an 80, yeah, 70, 80-year-old white man, um, when we were in our discussion, he raised his hand and he asked something that made me want to just give a really flip answer. But then it blew my mind when I took like a half a second and thought about it. And and he said, um, he asked me, okay, so do whites have to know about black culture in order to enjoy stories, you know, af- uh, stories of Afrofuturism? And hmm. and I thought about it, and then immediately I turned to the room and I said, okay, how many of you people saw Avatar? 
and <laughs> practically everybody raised their hand. And I said, before you went to the movie for the first time, how many of you knew a damn thing about blue-ass people? And everybody <laughs> dropped their hand, and they laughed because then they got yeah. it. You know, yeah. you know, because if if the story is told well, it doesn't matter what right. particular right. cultural perspective is. If the, if the story's told well, people are going to get into the story. You know, I don't have to know about blue-ass people to enjoy what, what I can enjoy about Avatar. I don't think it's a perfect movie. I don't think it's a very well-written movie. But, but I didn't have to know about, I didn't have to have, you know, some sort of course on the Navi before I went and saw the movie. Right. So, right. That totally um, makes sense. Um, for me, that, that, that point is, is best illustrated for me with, I'm a I'm a huge video game uh, player, like huge, probably too too much, but you know that's um that's something I can deal with. I think they they're doing they're trying to diagnose it as an addiction, and if that's the case, I want my money from the government. Um, but I there's a game called Mafia Three, okay? Mafia okay. Three follows the mafiosos. The Mafia series follows mafiosos, usually Italian gangsters and stuff like that. But Mafia Three took a kind of a different approach by making their um, protagonist black. And people lost their minds. And it was kind of like, I can't identify with this character because Lincoln Clay is the character's name, and he is a world, um, no, Vietnam, excuse me. He's a Vietnam vet. Uh, he did some black op stuff. He's, you know, bad at motherfucker. He's, a, he's, a, he's the guy. You know, he's a, he's a sure. raw dude, kind of like a, your solid snake, your black ops type guy. Um, and he comes home to New Orleans, and upon coming home, this huge disaster happens, and he decides that he is going to um, exact vengeance on the people who took everything from him. So that's the premise of the game. Okay. Um, there was a huge outcry from mafia fans and uh, white fans and everybody else, uh, and black fans too. It wasn't just white fans. It was everybody else saying that, well, I don't think it's really a good idea to make this character black because everybody can't empathize. And I find it interesting because I'm expected to empathize with Nathan Drake, who is uh, the main character in the Uncharted series, and he's a white male, uh, affluent. He runs around on adventures and, like, you know, tomb raids and stuff. And as far as tomb raids, I'm also expected to empathize with Laura Croft, you know, who is mm-hmm, a woman. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, like, I'm supposed I, as a black person, if we can't learn to suspend, you know, our our disbelief. personal feelings about yeah you know to spin that to spin that disbelief and inject right. ourselves in a role that is completely opposite of us then we really can't enjoy any media at all you know like if if you can't empathize with a character who is a white man then you just can't enjoy media if you can't empathize with a blue alien then you just can't you can't enjoy media but it seems like a lot of uh, white people in that in that uh, situation especially it was Mafia Three. And it was also right. uh, Watch Dogs. It was another game called Watch Dogs. It was like the science fiction super hacker game where you would, like, take over. Like, it was like this revolution. All these different hackers were, like, uh, taking over the city and stuff like that from a big corporation. And um, people were like, well, I can't empathize with this character because he's black. And, again, I'm like, how? How is it that you – can't empathize with a black character, but you think it's normalized for people of color or women because you don't have a lot of female protagonists. So you expect women and, and people of color to empathize with your white character, your white male character. And that's just the most phenomenal thing ever to me. And it's just, 
Luckily, uh, the game companies didn't care, and the game Mafia 3 is amazing. The mechanics are kind of repetitive, and it's, 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 not, it's not anything new. You know, it's not, it's not giving life to like, some new uh, function or it feature break within, the in the genre. Anyway. No, it, yeah. not at all. But it's a phenomenal story with so many nuances that if you are black, it is the blackest game I've ever played in my life. Like, you walk down the street, and it's shortly after Dr. King was killed, and the people are talking about it. And it's not just like, oh, they killed Dr. King or anything. You have two people arguing about whether or not Dr. King deserved to die or whether he was doing good for the community or what should the black community do next. Like, it's very natural. It's a living world with people having these, like, really deep conversations in the sideline to just bring the world to life, especially for a black person. Right. So that whole lack of empathy for a lack of being able to transcend and inject yourself into a world that is not what you're used to is crazy to me. Because you can, again, empathize with the big, the big uh, giant blue cat person, but you can't empathize with the black character. Yeah, but you know, you know what that boils down to, though? I mean, yes, at the core, that is, that is racism because white folks expect everything to be about them. And, hmm. and, and, that, and that is the bottom line. And white folks expect to own everything. White folks expect, expect to have whatever they want to have. Now, a lot of people are going to come down on me about this, but it's true. If you pay attention, it's true. Look at how incensed white folks are that they can't use the word nigga anymore. Okay? Yeah. They are incensed by it. They, you tell them they can't use the word. You take their job away. You mess with their money. You know, you say it, you know, you, you do a Paula Dean and your ass is in the penalty box for a few months until, you know, yeah. you've done your atonement. And until they it blows lose, over and you get your job back. Yeah, and they lose their minds. You can't say yeah. no to a white person without them losing their mind. And well, that see, is a thing. problem. It, this, this, I won't say that white people are malicious totally in this because a problem that I see more than anything else is black people who give the pass, black people who say, oh, no, it's just a word, bro. I don't care. Call me niggas. It's fine. You my nigga. I'm your nigga. We all niggas. We all government niggas. And it's like, it's like it, it, if the colloquial understanding is that that is not a word you say, all it takes is one black person to give a pass, and then that person will think, oh, well, I've been justified. My token said it was okay. So it's fine. Yeah. Yeah, but you know what? That doesn't work anymore because one of the coolest things that Richard Pryor did in American culture was he took the word away from white folks and he gave it to us. Gave it back to us. He gave it to us and we we control the word now and white folks don't like that. I don't want to get into a big black white thing because people are going to go, oh, you know, that Hayashi, he's got some issues. But the fact of the matter <laughs> is, you know, when when we talk about yeah, and that messes them up, too. Where did that Japanegro come from? Well, I've been here since Japanese. before Barack. Yeah, I've been here since before Barack arrived, Tiger arrived, and everybody else. I've been a Japanegro longer than all of them famous other biracial people. But the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, you and I are both aware, and we spoke about it earlier, that in order to, to craft good stories, 
and to craft good stories with with black characters, with with any kind with any kind of multicultural characters, there are some niceties that we have to observe in order to make the story palatable. And I don't mean like pandering to anybody, but you know, like I, I never write in I never write in slang. You know, I never write uh, dialect because, first of all, it's not proper English. Second of all, you know, that doesn't always happen in in my stories. So in, in order to maintain my creativity and to be able to put up what, I, what I want to put out there and to have it potentially be consumed by whites, I, I write, I have to write neutral. Hmm. Well, see, you know, is, now, the, 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 yeah. pro, the problem sometimes I encounter with that is sometimes um, I, I, I will avoid saying so whites that will accept it. I will say that it's globally, you see my fingers here, globally marketable. Yes, I, so, I heard the air quotes, yes. Right, yes, right. <laughs> so it's globally marketable. So yes. I will say that sometimes um, they come for that jargon. They 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 like that that hood talk, you know. So it's like if I make a boys in the hood type uh, story, they will come for that slang. They will come to number one emulate it and put it in their everyday life. And I say all this trap music now. This is basically um, trap music. All of the the cursing, all of the the nigga dropping, all of the crazy hair and all of this stuff. It's it's basically just lark for people who want to be thugs. Like they can just go out there. All the songs have nigga in it. You can kind of buzzword, nigga, 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 and then all the white kids right. can go around and say nigga, 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 you know. And so I've had some, I've had conversations when I'm driving in the car and I got a white friend with me, and it's kind of like we all know that that nigga part is coming up, and so you know sometimes we'll just wait to see what they do. Sometimes we'll go ahead and make that PSA. Like if you're new and I don't know you know you well, I'll go ahead and say, hey, and put this out here now. That's not okay. And they'll, you yeah. know, I've never, I've never had a situation where somebody bucked back or anything. So okay, I respect it. Cool, no problem. Uh huh. Uh huh. Well, let's get, to, let's get to your writing. You know, give okay. us a little background about kind of like what your creative universe is. First of all, how many, how many things do you have in, uh, in, in uh, that are published already? Well, I can make this real simple by saying that I have nothing, and I don't know what the hell that I'm doing at all, ever. Okay, so. well, thank you, everybody, for showing up. We'll be back <laughs> next week. No, I'm just, Frank, I'm just kidding, man. So, so, <laughs> well, by, by that, I mean I had no experience prior to this project. I just had kind of okay. like a passion and a dream and, you know, just a, a drive to get it done. So this is my first, like, finished and produced project. This was a miniseries, so there's at least four to five books in this miniseries, and what I have out. What I have coming out now, the Kickstarter is out now, um, uh-huh. and this will be the Kickstarter for book one. And so um, this particular project is, like I said before, it's a historical fantasy, and the name of the book is called Sword of the Free. And you can find that on Facebook. You can find it on Twitter. You can find it on the Kickstarter. Search Sword of the Free, and it'll pop right up. And cool. it's a 52-page graphic novel. Um, the coloring's done by um, a guy out of Texas named Peyton Free. Excuse me, I'm having a little technical difficulty here. Okay. Okay, sorry. About Are you that. okay? 
Yeah, I'm good to go. Oh, uh, I Please. just I just put your uh, the link to your Facebook page that you just spoke about in the chat room for oh, the, for the show. Much so people could just click Let's on stop it. Yeah, no problem. Give us a like, link it up. Um, so Peyton Freeman does our color, and he's a phenomenal color artist out of Texas. Um, Wong Koei is um, this is an interesting thing. He is an Indonesian artist that is Indonesian in Indonesia and does not speak English. And okay. so um, uh, the the process of going past that language barrier was very difficult. But at the same time, it wasn't because once he understood the project, I could fire, I would send images like crude drawings or other images or, you know, short bursts of the, the languages that we speak, and he would, like, right. get it. You know, and it's kind of right. like I've worked with people, you know, just kind of trying to start up projects, and I would give them a whole paragraph, very descriptive. They speak English, but then they don't get it. And so Wong would get it, and it, that was phenomenal to me how we could convey so many complicated ideas, like, with very few words, you know. Yeah, and without so, language. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, it was crazy. It was absolutely nuts. And so, um, and then, uh, you know, other times, uh, it was funny because at first I thought he wasn't understanding what I was saying sometimes, and then he uh-huh. would just take these creative liberties, but I said, oh, no, he understood me. He just kind of, he did some extra shit. And I kind of like this extra stuff. Okay, yeah, this is good. Let's keep this. You know, so he would take those liberties, and sometimes I would say, ah, nah, let's keep, let's get rid of that. Or I would say, okay, no, nah, this is good. Let's keep it. Um, and Peyton uh, Freeman out of uh, Texas, he would just, you know, add some kind of texture to something, you know, uh, give me two two versions of an image that I had in color where one is like, I said one is like, say, um, dusk, and then the other right. one, Maybe uh maybe dawn or something like that, and I was like okay well I was thinking I was thinking maybe midday, but now that I see this dusk this is really set in the ambiance I like that let's keep that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so um a major part of the stuff that I learned in this uh, experience is to kind of give your people on your team some leeway and kind of let them let them be creative you know you don't want to be a, a you don't want to be a, a dictator with the creative uh, process, you know, because we're all creative. You know, the writer, the the color artist, the, the penciler, and the, you know, letterer, even the letterer sometimes would like, you know, maybe bold a word that I didn't necessarily think would be a good idea to bold, but once I saw it, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, this works. This really adds mm-hmm, interest mm-hmm. to the panel. So sure. I, um, I have an extensive background in watching every stupid anime that I can get my hands on. So I love anime. I love manga. I love uh, video games and Western comic books and stuff like that. Uh, any kind of animation, uh, I'm all about it. The samurai, the samurai um, feel is just one of those things that has always like kind of reached out to me. And okay, when I I came across. Uh, a bit of history about an African um, swordsman that was a samurai under Nobunaga Oda, who was like the greatest warlord ever. When I saw that, I was like, oh, hell no, this has to be, I got to use this. This, this. this has to be something. So um, there's this uh, as a piece of history that's uh, about a guy named Yasuke. Uh, and he is, he was an African. He was an African who some say it was a slave. Some say it was a mercenary. It's, it's up in the air. Different people say different things. And sure. uh, we said something else in the book. So he ended up in Japan at the height of the Sengoku period. And, like, he, there was not, another part about this is that during this time, 
there were plenty of other Africans um, in Japan serving as like mercenaries and wise men, apothecaries, all over the place. You don't see this stuff in history, but it's out there. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So all these African people just, you know, all around Japan doing a little stuff serving. There was a gunman uh, that was like incredible that worked for one of the warlords, and he said like, she could shoot the wings off of a fly, you know. And it's just he was just such he was so precise with his shots, and he was so good that he trained all the other gunmen and all this stuff. So all this history is out here. So it started this journey when I found out this one piece of information to kind of look for another piece of information and another piece and another piece. And before I knew it, like I had all of this stuff in front of me and these pieces just kind of started coming together. And I was like, this is really, this is something that I can do. You know, it's kind of, as a writer, I'm sure you've had those moments when it's like almost a story like writes itself. Uh And it's kind of like, it just came together. And it's um, the problem though, is that Yake didn't have much, information about him as a person outside of his visit to Japan and him serving under Nobunaga. So I, I wanted to try to create a vehicle to learn more and explore that world and explore the character, and that's why I created a main character who is a completely fictitious character, and his name is Jin. Well, he's called Jin. Which there's, there's a difference between his name is Jin and he's called Jin, and that's very important. So uh, he's called Jin. And he is an extremely skilled swordsman. He is a wanderer. He is a man about uh, he's a man about adventure, high adventure. It's kind of like if you mix Samurai Jack and Conan, that's Jin. You know. Okay. So um, that's that's we use Jin as kind of a missing link to create this vehicle to understand and explore and interact with the history that's lost or what we have. Of Yasuke. Now, the story Damn. itself follows Jin as he right. is uh, wandering through Japan at the height of the 16th century. Um, and okay. he, encounters, he encounters a young girl who's recently been orphaned, and that encounter completely changes his life, spirals out of control. All this stuff starts happening. Now, Jin himself is on a quest for Yasuke. And as he finds Yasuke, he also finds other interesting things that tie to other interesting things that tie to other interesting things. So it's kind of like a, a cascade of, well, I guess you could just call it a cascade of discovery. I mean, it's okay. Yeah, I think yeah. the equivalent, the, the modern day equivalent is when you go and you click on a video that someone sends you from YouTube and then, and then, Two hours later, you're, you've been clicking on other videos that popped up over to the right because oh, they were absolutely. interesting. Right. And, it's, it's exactly and, and you know, yeah. you get into the weeds <laughs> that way. But, but the, the cool thing is, and oftentimes you don't know what you're going to find. And some of the stuff can be pretty, you know, can be unexpected. And for a creative, you know, if you're taking your notes or whatever, or, or, or uh, what do they call it, linking to, you know, uh, 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 bookmarking a page or what have you, it can lead to some pretty compelling storytelling because what you've done is you've discovered things that are outside your lexicon but, but would make good fodder for a story. Right, and right. that happened to me a few times in this process. You know, I would just come across, I would, go, I would come across this some interesting tidbit, just something, oh, huh. Look at that. Huh. Okay. That's interesting. I could implement uh, uh-huh. I could input that 
I could, you know, slide that in here. I could use this influence here. And it just, it came together. And this right. is, book one is the beginning of the story. So all of the deep, it's, all the, the elements of mysticism, you know, they're there. Um, it's going to evolve piece by piece. Um, Jen will encounter yokai uh, of all types, um, all types of supernatural situations, spiritual creatures from various cultures and, you know, various times and all this stuff. He himself has a connection to the spirit world, to the divine. He's a diviner, so he's all, he has all these different things that circle around him, you know, due to his past, his history. And, and as the story continues, the readers will find out about his history and why these things seem to gravitate toward him. Okay. So this is, this is kind of like historical fantasy, right? Absolutely. Yeah, but rather than, you know, hard sci-fi or horror or anything like that. Okay, that's pretty cool. Now, when you – no, you know what? What tipped it in? What tipped in you deciding, I am going to do this? I am going to make this happen? Um, was, was it a long, drawn-out process, or, or did, was it just something that just popped at you and you said, hey, this has to be done. I'm the one to do it. Well, I'm a dream chaser, um, for better or worse. And, you know, there's a thing that I want to do, and I will probably risk my safety, security, financially, physically, whatever, if I want to do it, you know. And so the way I produce this book, first and foremost, is out of pocket. You know, I, I produced it completely out of pocket, and that's why it took so long to produce, because I had to pay the bills and also produce out of pocket. Because I didn't, sure. want, any, I didn't want any chance of it not happening or not being completed. So I've seen Kickstarter campaigns, you know, happen. You're trying to get $3,000, you get 2.8, and then you get nothing. It's all or nothing. Right. So um, the first thing was just deciding that I wanted to do it, and that happened just like, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm, tired of, I'm tired of not seeing it, you know, and I want to see it. And I, mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. the story with Jocelyn and Jim and all that, that was the vehicle of saying I want to see black characters in a positive light. Not to say that they're not, you know, black characters in a positive light out there, but to me, I can never get enough. You know, I want more black characters in the positive light. I want black, black strong leads. I want more black villains. You know, I want all of those things. Because also, the, the, the black characters that I see, if they're not caricatures of misunderstandings of black culture, they are kind of too on the nose, too clean, pristine, you know, it, it's out of respect, I understand, but also I would like to see a grimy black villain, like really grimy, without it being like super hood or ignorant or something like that. You know, one of the things, one of my favorite characters, that's uh, Mr. Glass from Unbreakable, you know, mm-hmm. I love Okay, that. yeah. Love yeah. it, you know, because he was black, but it wasn't, his blackness wasn't a, a um, it wasn't a gimmick it, for his character. It, and it and it was completely secondary to the story. Exactly. He was he was he was who he was and he happened to be black. You know. Right. And right. You know, you add the rest of the stuff like he's a black person as a child reading these comic books, his black mother working these jobs to get him his books because he's this and that. Like that adds to it, but it in no way takes over his character or the story at large and I love that. And I wanted mm-hmm. to do that. I wanted to do that. I wanted to be a part of that. I've always wanted like a seat at the table because I consume all this media 
you know, the anime, the comic books, every piece of me, all the shows. I sit and watch Netflix shows all day. But I wanted to kind of, I wanted to do it too. I wanted to be one of the guys who made the thing, you know. And I just kind of, money was right at the time. The passion was burning. I had a good story I think I could tell. So I just kind of decided to go for it. Yeah. And, and, and so you, have to, you have to invest in yourself. And a I'm lot, sorry? a lot of people, you have to invest in yourself. And a lot of creators oh, okay. and a lot of potential people that I know do not like want to take that step to say I'm going to invest in myself. I, like I have an idea, but I don't want to go ahead and put forth the effort or the capital or whatever it is to get it done. Right. Well, I mean, there there are all sorts of impediments people getting things done. You have those who are, who are afraid of failure. You have those who are afraid of success. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there are all kinds. Well, and, and that, well, yeah, but see, the, the thing is, is people put their own impediments in their own way and they can't get mm-hmm. out of their own way. And, and, mm-hmm. and those are the kind of people who don't finish things. Like when I first started writing, I, I joined some writers groups because I, I didn't know everything. I had never, mm-hmm. I'd never written a book before. And so I talk to people and I say, okay, so what are you working on? Oh, I've been working on a novel. Yeah, really? How long have you been working on it? Well, you know, I'm going on my, my uh, 10th year. And so I would say, I would ask, okay, so what's the main impediment to you finishing your work, you know, to you getting it to the point where you can clean it up and publish it? And they go, well, you know, life gets in the way. I, I go out, you know, I work all day. I've got kids and I'm too tired to work on it. And, you know, I really have to be in the right mindset to get into, you know, to get back into it. And, and so I, I can't make a value judgment about that because I can't talk about how, how someone else's process works. Mm-hmm. But I can say this. I figured out a process that was, that was going to work for me. And what I did was I treated my writing like a part-time job. Mm-hmm. Every night at 10 p.m., I stopped what I was doing, and I started writing or editing till about 2 in the morning. Okay, so mm-hmm. that's four hours a day. That is a part-time job. Oh, yeah. And, oh, yeah. and because of that, in nine months, I wrote a 330,000-word novel, which was way too many damn words. So I had a bunch <laughs> of them cut up, 100, 110,000 cut out. But, but seriously, you know, there, it goes to exactly what you're saying about you have to you, – not only do you have to invest in yourself, but there may be sacrifices down the road that must be made. Absolutely. And if, if, if you aren't prepared at that particular time to make those sacrifices, the chances are pretty good you're not going to get done. Yeah, you're so, right. I completely agree. And I told someone this before, that sacrifice may not be what you think it is. It may be time. It may be money. It may be the quality of a relationship, you know, because a, a girl that I was dating at the time, she would get upset because I would do what you just said. I would spend that time at the end of the night at my computer, you know, writing notes, researching, you know, uh, communicating, you know, because uh, Wong is in Indonesia on a completely different time than I am. Right. So, right. you know, I would have to get up at two in the morning, three in the morning to try to talk to him, you know? Right. So, you know, and it wasn't just because of the time difference, but also his life. I think he's got, he's married. He's got like six kids and stuff. And I mean, like, he, he has a whole, like, you know, whatever it is, if I'm a team lead, then I have to kind of meet people where they are, you know. And I'm not going to be like, well, 
I'm the leader, so you contact me when I, I say contact me. You, you know, you got you to gotta go to the path of least resistance. And one of those things was sacrificing time at the end of the night, getting out of bed with her and going to talk to this, this strange man on the other side of the world. Well, and, and just, just, you know, between you and me, don't tell her I said this, you know, if you ever talk to her again. But you know no. what? She was asleep already. You know? Yep. yep. So, so what was she, she complaining about? She would wake up to see if I was in bed and then get mad at me. No comment, because I ain't getting in trouble. But yeah, no. I, you know, when when I uh, when I was living with my the woman who eventually became my wife. Let me see where it was. No, we were married. And I'm an IT guy. I've been an IT guy for like 45 years or so. And okay. so. You know, she would she would come into the dining room, which was my office, where I was working, writing software or doing what I was doing, and mm-hmm. she would say this one thing that made me want to do things that, you know, today, you know, your, your ass gets put in the newspaper about. But she would say to me, well, when are you going to be done playing on the computer? Mm, look, I, <laughs> I'm laughing because my girl at the time used to come out and say, oh, so you writing your little book. Oh, oh, see, yeah, okay. Say no more. Say no more. This is important. You know, so, oh, you, you on your little computer writing that little book. Okay, you, you playing little, with your computers. little book. Yeah. When are you done playing on the computer? Yeah. yeah. I, uh, uh, I know just what you mean. Man. <laughs> I just had a flashback there. Thanks for that. Well, you know, it, but but see, the, the the funny thing is, is that too many of us have run into that. And then and then that also explains why other people maybe couldn't finish their work because mm-hmm. maybe maybe somebody was pressuring them like that. You know, that's a tough right, thing to do. Right. You don't you don't well, want to go against, no you know, somebody. Oh yeah. yeah. And 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 like you said, if you don't have that support, it's a hundred times harder to get things done. Mm-hmm. Um, now I am fortunate so, enough to always have had people behind me. I have a brother and my older brother is like she has been my biggest fan since, like, day one. I would be okay. all the little stupid stories I had written throughout the years, like since adolescence to high school, uh, college, whatever, all of it. He remembers all of it. He remembers characters and storylines and elements that I hadn't thought about in, like, 15 years. Right. And so he would say, hey, man, uh, what about what about Toshiyuki, man? Toshiyuki would be cool. And I was like, Toshi, you, what the hell is a Toshi? Oh, that character from what? Wow, that was like 15 years ago, man. And he was like, right. hey, that's a good, good story. And so, you know, you're having those positive influences that supercharge you and keep you going to make you want to do uh, more, to keep pushing forward. You know, when I, I've been writing this book for a long time, and one of the things that have always kept me going was that people always ask me about it. Always. Well, when people value you when, and, and value what you're doing and, and the amount of work that goes into it, you know, not people who don't know a damn thing about writing have a tough time understanding what people who write go through in order to be creatives. And so finding, finding a support system that appreciates, you know, the work that you do and, and the results that you get, that, that's golden. You know, that, yeah. that, can, that can sustain you, you know, during those times where you go, man, I got writer's block, or man, you know, it's taking too long for me to get famous, or man, you know, where is my, where is my option for the movie? You know, whatever your, mm-hmm. your, your final goal is, 
or maybe not your final goal, but the next step is if people don't understand it and you feel like you're sitting there and you're striking out alone, it makes it 100 times harder to sustain yourself. And that's that's where your own personal gumption comes in. Some people have it, some people don't. So, yeah, no, I can I can respect the fact that you have a good support system behind you because I realize that that more than anything else is going to push you through those tough times. Yeah. I'm like, it's, it's crazy how it's people who you know and love can support uh-huh. you and keep you, you know, inspired, but it was also people who like, I barely knew or, like, you know, I knew in passing who would ask me about it. So it was things like... Um, in particular, um, I have been known to visit the gentleman's club from time to time. And when I was For research. Go, for research. Yeah, for research. Yeah, purposes, for research. Course, yeah, research, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got it. Yeah, yeah, purposes I got it. Only, of course. So, See how quick I jumped in on that? Uh, on that? Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> no so problem, I, man. Just trying to I help a brother out. Hey, yeah. it's appreciated, man. I would go, and there was one girl, you know, her name was Candy. And so I told Candy one time that I was writing something. I mean, it was a while ago. And then I go another time, and Candy's like, oh, yeah, how's the book going? You know, um, I saw something on some Japanese history the other day, and I thought about you. Could you put that in your book, maybe? And I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh. you are literally, like, doing your work with the crowd all around you, all these guys around you. And she stopped to ask me about you know, a Japanese character that I might be able to include in my story. And I'm like, wow, this is, it's crazy when people remember that you're the guy with the thing. And right. like, even like, yeah. to, to be known as the guy with the thing is amazing. You know, and you never know guy. when that's going to stick in somebody's head. Yeah. You know, you yeah. just never know because um, people do remember odd things about other people. Um, I, I will tell you my seminal moment that I will never forget. It was November November 8th, 2013. And I went to Walgreens to get a prescription filled. And, you know, they always ask you for your birth date first, and they ask you for your name, you know, mm-hmm. when they look you up in the computer. And I gave my birth date, and then I gave my name. And she said to me, and I quote, are you William Hayashi, the author? Oh, shit. I, you know, wow. You could, man, that. I, oh my you God! See, you see, I remember the the date. You That's know, amazing. That that was the coolest thing in my entire life. Not not because, I mean, just because somebody who I'd never seen before, because she was new at that Walgreens, and you know, you go know good and well that nobody at the Walgreens was talking about my ass and my books. Okay, right, and and yet. She said, are you William Hayashi, the author? And that just blew my mind. It just, I mean, I, I can't think of any cooler thing that could have happened, you know? Yeah, that's, that's like one, that's one of those crystallizing moments, man. I have, I have had similar moments, but that particular moment, you know, the, the, my name, the author, like the recognition right. from a stranger, that is like, man, that's next level. I, it, I, got, it, you I know, got hype hearing that story about you. Like, <laughs> Well, I I can't tell you how how well you already know how deeply affected it affects me. You already know, oh, you yeah. know because if that if when when that happens to you, you got to come back and tell me about it because we're gonna high five and we're gonna go get a drink. Oh yeah, I'm with you. You know what I'm saying because that is that's a badass moment in somebody's life, and yeah. and someone who's not a creative probably won't understand that. You know, it's one thing to be J.K. Rowling. 
It's one thing to be that trash-ass lady who wrote Fifty Shades of Grey. You know, that sort of thing. <laughs> but to be at your... Well, it, it is it's poorly written. It, 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 it's very poorly written. No, it's, Mr. Grey, but, he will see you now. He's ready well, to see yeah, you. But, yeah, but see, it's born for housewives. So, of course, it, it was going to take off, you know, because they could yeah. read it and, you know, they'd be semi-respectable, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so it's S&M for housewives. But, yeah. But, you know, once you sell that many books, it doesn't mean anything. But for me, you know, my first book came in 2009, and this happened in 2013. That's an incredibly short amount of time for anything like that to have happened. So, you know, it it did blow my mind. Um, Now, for you, you know, tell us a little bit about the kind of feedback you're getting directly about the story for people who know, you know, whether it's, you know, beta readers, uh, friends, family, what have you, what kind of feedback are you getting about your creative universe? Because that, you know, is very important in, in sustaining your effort. Because if you weren't getting positive feedback, you would either do something different or you would make adjustments. Right. Now, see, one of the things I do constantly to um, the annoyment of a lot of people around me is I would constantly talk about the story, constantly talk about the characters, and I would bounce ideas off of people. Like, hey, what if X, Y, Z? Or what do you think about this? Or what do you think about that? Or what if, you know, the character did this and that and that instead instead of that? And they were very, um, they they stayed engaging. They were always engaged me. They would always throw ideas back and forth at me. So if I went to lunch with my friends or family, it eventually at one point or another would then become the writer's room, and we're all around the table eating and crafting a story or crafting wow. elements of the story. And so um, I, we have a long-running joke where I'm like, oh, you know, this is a good idea, yada, yada, yada. This is what I pay you for. And it's like, you don't pay us. And it's like, well, one day, one day, maybe. We'll see. Mm-hmm, and it's mm-hmm. like, it, it's just, it, it's great to get that feedback from people who believe in your story, who believe in what you're doing. And I've, I've had sure. people be like, yo, hey, that right there? That shit's trash. That's garbage. I don't like that. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, okay, oh, so okay, so maybe not. Um, this character in this way. And it's like, yeah, if it ended like that, that was, I wouldn't like that. I wouldn't be fulfilled by that. You know, it mm-hmm, would feel like mm-hmm. a payoff. You know, and so we would then talk about endings that they like and what they like about those endings and why they didn't like this ending. And that feedback was just vital, integral to, to really fine-tuning what I was trying to do because I'm a, um, I'm a post-production editor too. So okay. uh, my team doesn't like that. I'm like, hey, so um, I was taking a shower and I had an idea. So let's go to page 32 and change this dialogue. So uh, I do that a lot, but I also want to make sure that things are fine-tuned. You know, I, I get inspiration. I find ways to connect something. And the thing about it is what it feels intentional sometimes, but it wasn't, and I realized it later, like, oh, I said something on page six that really related to something that, that like, happened on page 50. Huh, interesting. I didn't mean for that to happen at all. And so I said, okay. well, if I add something on page 25 to kind of bridge that gap, it'll be even better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I would well, do you- those type of things, and then I would get the feedback from the people, and they would say, hey, you know, do this, or it'd be cool if, you know, this this effect was on it, or it's like effect. You really think an effect would work here? Oh yeah, man, something like uh, this or something like that. And they show me an example, send me a link, show me a page of a book they have, and I'm like, oh yeah, okay, I do like that. 
that's not bad. And and the other thing that I have found as a creative is that my subconscious is working a lot harder than I ever, ever, ever would have suspected. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, there are times when, when I was writing my first book, when I would dream what was going on in the book, you know, in the manuscript, mm-hmm. and then come up with some ideas. Or, you know, I would I would race out and put out, you know, a whole chapter's worth of dialogue that I had not, that my subconscious had already worked through, you know. Mm-hmm. So that was that was like fascinating to me that all of that was going on in the background, um, and and so now now my process is a lot more refined. You know, I'm let's see, what have I written now? I've written one of the seven books now. I'm on my eighth one, and so my process is I know more about how I do things than I ever did. So so it has become easier. But mm-hmm. I had no idea that my my subconscious would become so invested in it because I didn't. You know, when I wrote my first book, I didn't know a damn thing about how to write a book. Mm-hmm. You know, I wrote a book. It, it was written out of protest. It was written out of protest because um, in America's lexicon, I don't exist. You don't exist. You know, Jarvis right. doesn't exist. All of these black folks who just are regular ass people have jobs, have families, have have you know, they aren't athletes, they aren't uh musicians, they aren't Oprah, right, they aren't right. Michael Jordan. You know, they don't exist in the American lexicon. You know, it's you know, it's thugs, it's this, it's that. And and, you know, I got fed up reading science fiction because I've been a sci fi nut since uh since I was really young because my dad was a sci fi nut. And and the thing is is, you know, they they never had black folks in there. And, you know, the big joke, the running joke for Star Trek was, you know, if there was ever a black guy in the show, he had a red shirt on and his ass was gone by the first commercial, you know. Or or like Richard Pryor said, yeah, I'm tired of watching all these science fiction movies about the future because we're not in them. So obviously they're not planning for us to be here, you know. And, yeah. and so, you know, I wanted to write about the the kinds of people I grew up with. And, well, and see, normalize this. Yeah, I, I feel like that completely. And also, you mentioned Star Trek. Well, first and foremost, Star Trek or Star Wars? Where you at? I'm. Uh, I think that because Star Trek than a 46 minute platform probably had a little bit type. I don't have very much respect for the scripts for the Star Wars. Movies. The, fir- the first three that came out, episodes four, five, and six, I thought that was a, a great trilogy. I think episodes one, two, and three were BS, and the only reason why those three episodes were done came down to uh, 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 15 seconds in the third installment, episode three, oh, yeah. Yeah. where we heard Darth Vader breathe. You yeah. put together to spend that much money to spend that much time and to, you know, get that many half-ass actors together just to lead up to Darth Vader's breathing, that's to me. You know, See, I, it, I think the worst part about the Star Wars uh, episodes one, two, and three was, uh, was, was two and three was Anakin. Anakin was terrible. He was well, awful in yeah. every – I really feel uh, like if it was a different actor playing Anakin – with different mannerisms and all that good stuff, it would have been completely different, and it would have been something that was more worthwhile. Because for the most part, Anakin just whined. He whined more as a teenager than he did when he was like a little boy in the first movie. 
You know, the yeah, person, and, he was, and, like, clever, and he was, like, you know, real streetwise and doing all this stuff. Right. He was a cool little kid. And then, like, in episodes two, it's like, who's this little bratty kid? Like, you just an uh, emo teenager. And he brought Most everybody around. else around down. Yeah, he You did, know, he did. Uh, what's his way? Uh, what's his name? Obi-Wan, you know, had to deal mm-hmm. with the whining. And Princess, mm-hmm. what's her face? She had to deal with the whining and the whining Definitely. and the whining. So yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I can't I can't fault you for that analysis at all. It makes you know that's that's exactly what happened. So you know I I do I like Star Trek and I like that they are trying new iterations, new variations on the theme. They could do better, but I guess when you have a Roddenberry involved, you kind of have to follow canon that he says. You know. Um, this uh, Star Trek Discovery, I think the first episode was a complete waste. I didn't like the way they. I don't like the writing because I don't look. Look, I, I'm a huge uh-huh. Star Trek fan. I am a like. It is the thing that I nerd out the most about. Like right. I'm I'm, I'm a huge uh-huh. Star Trek fan. And it, and the, it started because I got to see black people in prominent roles from yeah, uh, her to Commander Worf to Joy to the Forge, and even, like, you know, like, one of the smartest men in the Star Trek universe is a black guy. His name was Daystrom. Dr. Daystrom was a black yeah. guy who was, like, a brilliant scientist. Brilliant. Now, he did some stupid stuff with AI that kind of led to everybody getting in trouble, but, like, even in TNG, they have the Daystrom Institute, like, that all the yep. technological cybernetic stuff, they, it all happens there. They, they do it in the Daystrom Institute. So, yep. like, that homage, and you got Cisco, you know, and like each iteration is always like a shout out. It will past like Enterprise and the rest of my uh, Enterprise kind of shaky. But um, in DS9, you had Worf, you had Cisco, and you had Jake Cisco, who was an. Uh, I hate Jake Cisco, but I understand his character and why he was there because he was a depart from the traditional military based Star Trek character. He was a civilian. Right. He was a writer. Right. Now, because of that, I find him, you know, tasteless and uninteresting, but I get why somebody like that would would exist, you know. But then you go into Voyager, you've got Tuvok. I got a black Vulcan now, a black Vulcan. I, I was like, like the, the, the writing on Voyager was kind of weak sometimes and inconsistent, but I still love Tuvok, you know. And in TNG, you know, they will pop up every now and then. There's a black Romulan uh, sub-commander that Picard is talking to, and it's like, man, this is this is a black person, and he is black, and he's got the Romulan bowl cut, and he's black. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah he also, yeah. he's black, you know? Yeah. And so it's just like I loved how black Star uh, Trek is and how um, how we're, we're influential. We are influential in that world, and I like that. Sure. But to go to Discovery, I cannot stand, stand Discovery. I cannot stand it. It is a you – know, it is a huge part from what Star Trek is supposed to be. Um, I understand that it is designed to bring in new viewers, and that's fine. But to do that, they kind of threw to the wayside generations of Star Trek um, uh, mythos, mythos, canon, all that. They just threw it away. And then they, like, inject themselves forcefully into canon by making the main character, the spoilers if, if anybody hasn't seen Discovery, uh, making the, the main character, who is a black woman, which I absolutely love and I really want to support the show because of it. That's the only reason I support it, because it's a black woman. And I, I, have no, right. I have no qualms about that. I support everything black I can find. So 
Yeah. Um, it's well, a black the other woman thing is, who, who, oh, who somehow is Fox's sister, who is who is Fox's sister somehow that we never heard about. Right. Who was the, the first traitor to Star Trek that we still never heard about, not one time. Right. And so, yeah. like, that retroactive writing right. uh, kind of uh, retcon uh, scenario, it's hard <laughs> to suspend my disbelief like that, man. Like, it's just yeah. like, okay, so you mean to tell me Spock has a human sister, a surrogate sister, if you want to be specific or whatever, who he has never mentioned while talking about humanity, while talking mm-hmm. to Kirk, or that Kirk never brought up. McCoy didn't give a damn about his feelings, so it's like, you damn uh, green-blooded Vulcan, how can you have a black sister? You know, what? why did that happen one time? You know, I just it just doesn't make sense. Now, I think Discovery would have been a, a great show had they put it in the timeline past Voyager, you know, because Voyager is the, the farthest out as far as the chronology goes, but right. you've got this tech that's more advanced than everything else in Star Trek, but you're telling me that it's before the Constitution class vessel, which is... No kidding, the, yeah. Like, are you kidding me? Like, you're telling me that the universe is laced with these organisms that you can ride across the whole universe and be somewhere instantaneous and start... Starfleet just never did anything else with that, or never tried to revitalize the program, or, or we Section never Thirty One never about tried. It. Yeah, like, like even, you know, if, even if it's said, Yeah, Spock would have said something about it in some context, you know, in canon with, that it was uh, that it was possible. Look what he did with the uh, giving Scotty in uh, what movie was that? It was uh, the one where the I guess it was the Romulans blew up Vulcan, you know. Oh and, yeah, that's and so, uh, and so Spock the first Star said, Trek uh, movie. Yeah, the and he, movie. you know, he he gave uh, what's his name, uh, uh, Commander Scott, his trans warp equations. You know, he messed with the with the timeline by doing that because he knew about him in the future. Blah blah blah. But you know, I think the I think what what Discovery suffers from is writers who are trying to make it all things to all people and it just can't be done it just can't be done um anyway so let's get back to you um when when you think about putting together your creative universe how did you decide you know you, obviously you know you, you you've decided the historical thing you've decided the, the fantasy aspect of your creative universe, what, you know, what did you read and, and watch and whatever through your lifetime that kind of suggested to you that this would be the area, the kind of place where your creative universe would be created? Well, I'm a huge uh, gamer. Uh, I've said that a few okay. times. And one of my favorite things was the Dynasty Warriors series. It's a game. It's historical but you also run around and kill people and shoot cannons and do all of this stuff. And they made, uh, Koei uh, made really interesting interpretations of history, and I always find that interesting. And mm-hmm. uh, things like uh, Animusha, all the games with the warriors from that era, uh, Samurai, uh, Samurai X, you know, Veronica Kenshin, that whole thing, that whole era just always jumped out at me. It's very it's very dramatic, you know. Like at this point in history, Japan is very much like Africa is now. It's a continent right. split into, you know, a bunch of countries. And at right. one point, Nobunaga Oda, you know, the Demon King himself, 
decided to just sweep the country and take it over to unify it. He wanted to unify the country. So, like, mm-hmm. if, if I, I imagine, like, I look at that and I would say, man, what would happen if somebody did that to Africa? If, if somebody just swept across Africa and just, you know, took all the countries and, you know, decolonized the areas and, you know, unified Africa as, as a united front. You know, of course, in this, we know, you know, from a governmental standpoint that, you know, different governments have their uh, their slice of Africa. So, you know, that's not going to happen without a fight. Sure. You know? um, sure. But in, in, in Japan's case, uh, Nobunaga, you know, he went from the West. He, he would go, he would defeat somebody, and he'd be like, look, you can get, you can get with us. You can get down or lay down. What you going to do? You know, and, and he would take over regions and add people to his army with a small, very capable army. He became one of the greatest warlords that ever lived, you know. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that took him out, which ironically enough, was his own camp. His his right-hand man took him out, you know. And it's kind of like, you know, how how different would Japan have been if Nobunaga Oda was not assassinated by Mitsuhide? I wonder. It, yeah, know? if he would have stuck to what... Uh, what uh, Vito Corleone said: Keep your in, uh, your friends close, but your enemies closer. Right. Like right. Right. I feel like if if he if Nobunaga would have entered, he would have really benefited from a a conversation with Corleone. Like if it's Tatalia or Barzini, if it's either going to be one of them, you know. Right. If he could have saw right. him coming, if he could have saw that it was Tatalia or Barzini on the way, he it might have changed the course of history. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I go into those kind of scenarios. So to, to get back to the whole thing, I love that part of history because of the connection that I can draw to it. You know, but outside of the warriors, outside of the, the drama and the fantasy, the romancing kingdoms of China and stuff like that, like I, it, it's, it's a very dramatic era. You know, um, it's also why I like the, the world wars, you know, World War One and Two, the Nazis and all these different things like um, these people, like the world was changed. These are like the the real life, epic, biblical level stories that you know history has, and it's um, they're just in, they're really intriguing. And one of the greatest battles um, was this battle in Japan called the Battle of Sekigahara, and that's mm-hmm. an integral part of um, of the book and the book series. It's all of the events. I can tell you this: all of the events that happened in this book are building toward. The Battle of Sekigahara. Okay. And so okay. Yasuke and Jen and all these different people, those different characters, will somehow play an important role of the events that unfolded at the Battle of Sekigahara. Now, you know, that's much later. That's like book four or three or something like that. But the events have to unfold first to lead to that climax. Man. Now, in your world building, is this in your head, or do you have like a a a, a series Bible? You know, your universe's Bible. How a little bit of both. Track? A little okay. bit of both. Uh, it's funny. I have fail safes in place. I've imparted different um, notes and verbal cues and information to different people, and I say, if I die, I need all y'all to get together and finish my story. So, okay, like that's kind of like a fail safe. Because um, mortality is something I think about a lot. Because you can really die at any time. You know, I've seen it happen. And I've seen a guy. Are you up. talking about? Are you talking about your mortality? Yes, my own mortality. You know, 
Wow. It's like I may I may die tomorrow. I may die tonight when I get off the phone with you or on the phone with you right now. So I have these notes in place or this information stored in certain ways that, you know, I'm not Marvel Comics or DC or anything like that, so I don't have to have any super encrypted files, you know, buried deep at the bottom of the ocean or nothing. But I, um, I have information stored that explains the story and how the, the purpose of the story, the characters, where they are when the story starts, where they should be when the story ends, or when there's this art, because I'm looking at it as art, and so this is the second Yohara art, if you want to say it like that. So uh, my idea, my, my vision is to have different arts that tell different stories with these characters, you know. So I have this arc laid out. I talk to my brothers. I talk to my friends. You know, I say this is, this is the purpose of this book. And bouncing ideas off all these people all along the way makes it easier because now they're trained. They understand the story, you know, sometimes more than I do. And you know, right. my, my, my color artist, uh, he's also my letterer. And he, you know, he knows a bunch of stuff, and they all know a bunch of stuff. And, you know, of course, um, and this is another part. For anybody who's interested in doing anything creative or, you know, writing a novel or anything with a team, get documentation. Get your paperwork in order. Get your do mm-hmm. not, uh, non, get your non-disclosure agreements. Get your work-for-hire agreements. Get all of that. And it may be offensive to some people, but if you have, if you want, if you want to make a book, and you have an artist, and you tell your artist that you want to sign a contract, and he doesn't want to, find another artist. Absolutely. You know, find Absolutely. another guy that's going to do the cover for your book. If you got this guy you love his, his cover work, it doesn't matter. Find another guy. Sign the contract. Have the contract. Have legal stuff all in order before you even start for real. Because you can make a great thing and then get caught up in legal stuff and, you know, be looking like Todd McFarlane out here. You know, great legacy, no money. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so um, that's another thing. When I was doing all the legal stuff, I have a, um, I have a chain of custody for the the property. Who owns the property? Uh, you know, who has everything? All the stuff. Who who gets ownership of the universe that I'm building? Because it has other components that I'm also building uh, alongside it. Like at the same time, this is the first okay. one to release. So this will be the first one to release, and I have other things building, other projects with other people okay. starting up, and. You know, all of that collectively, there's a chain of custody with that, you know. And so um, in that chain of custody, I have detailed notes on this and that. But it also, it has to be very organic because those notes change. I get new ideas, you know, and I get things that, you know, are completely different. So this book is completely different from what I set out from when I first started it. Um, I put it wow. on Kickstarter. The the uh-huh. idea for this, this, uh, this story started as a song I rapped. Um, I used to rap. I don't start rap anymore. I used to rap back in the day. So um, I'm, I'm a I'm a walking stereotype when it comes to a lot of things. Um, I mm-hmm, love fried mm-hmm. chicken, um, big booty, and I rap. You know, so all of those. Oh, oh, oh! So you must be black. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah, I'm a I'm a black person. You know, so uh, if I can uh-huh. get like a a, a, a piece of a chicken in one hand, like a big booty in another hand. And be in front of a mic, that's like all the stereotypes in one. You know, oh, so, man. but I, I like what I do. You know, I like, I don't mind, quote, unquote, looking like a stereotype or whatever sometimes, but, you know, it is what it is. So I was rapping, and I was like, you know what, this would be cool. You know, if it was, because I like narrative raps, you know, like um, uh, this, the, the raps that tell a story, you know. Once upon a time, not long ago. Like, I love, yeah, like, 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 like the beginning of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. 
Yeah, I love those stories. Uh-huh. Like I can I can see it in my head. I see the thing playing out. I see the characters. I see the world. And I said, this is cool. And so that's how the uh-huh. thing started. I said, let me make a song about a samurai walking on a road, you know. And I said, well, maybe make, I can make him, uh, maybe not a samurai, but a ronin. Maybe I can make him just a foreigner, a foreign swordsman. And so, I, 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 like, all these ideas started swirling around. And in time, I was like, okay, well, I like this song. But I, don't, I can't mm-hmm. tell all the story with this song. So let me, let me uh, I do another song. It'll be two tracks instead of one. I said, okay, wait a minute. I got to do three tracks now to really explain the story because I have the story on them elements now. So I'll make an EP. And then the EP turned to an LP, and the LP turned to an album. And the album said, you know what? I need some bonus art for the album, so right. maybe I'll draw something up. And so okay. that process of getting something drawn up turned into, well, maybe I'll do a little bonus mini mini comic, you know? And now it's a 52-page comic uh, graphic novel, um, and there's actually no... There are plans for the song that started it all, but um, okay. we haven't done it yet. You know, so it's just, it's, it really, like, the idea can start in one place and end in a completely different place. And I'm okay with that. It, 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 like, yeah. what I have is, 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 has evolved and mutated even into something that I, I, thought, I, I think is great. And it started from, like, yeah, I, just, I had a couple bars once. I was, I was. I don't know, sitting on the toilet or something, and I, I thought of a couple bars, and was like, oh, okay, that's, that, that rhymes. Oh, okay, yeah, that rhymes too. And then mm-hmm. here we go. Well, and, and people have tried, I mean, for for probably a couple thousand years to to figure out what's the basis for the creative process, and mm-hmm. and it's and it's and it can be different for everybody. You know, you can mm-hmm. you can have people where, you know, okay, I'll give you an example. A lot of writers will think of an interesting character, then they'll sit down and start writing, which drives me out of my effing mind. I don't know how they do that, not knowing where they're going. Right. For me, I have to world. know the ending. I need to know right. the ending so I know what to write toward. Mm-hmm. You know, so I always come up with a really cool, ironic ending, and then once I have that, then I craft the story to get there. So. You know, I, I understand that other people are very successful with that other process, but man, I, I can't, I can't, I, I just can't understand it. You know, See, so I, I like to make a concept, like okay, you know, here, here's the big idea. This is the concept of the story. Then I say, well, in this story, who is the character? So then I'll make it a character, and then I'll start to plug in stuff about the character in relation to the world while also making the world. So like, the concept for me is like. There's a black dude with a sword in Japan. Wow, he's a samurai. And so then I had to start plugging in stuff to play around that concept and then try to figure out, you know, what happened. Like, I, I have a, a broad stroke idea for what I want to happen in the story, like the, okay. the conclusion. But sure. um, there are points of the story. I have no fucking idea what happened. I have no idea. You know, so it's just one of those things that uh, it'll, whatever happens will happen. It'll develop itself. But I also left that component in purposely because one of the bonuses in the Kickstarter is at certain levels um, of support, you can pledge to actually affect the story. You can make minor characters or major characters. You can, you know, craft a character to look like you or your wife or your son or daughter or whatever. You know, you can, uh, you can kind of guide the story, who's going to be the villain in the next one. If you like a piece of history, like say you, you know, you really like um, – you really like stuff that happened with the Catholic Church and the uh, 
and the, the Protestant Reformation. So, you know, if you pledge at a certain level, then we can kind of guide the story toward the Protestant Reformation while also kind of keeping in, in tune with the overarching story. But those little small stops along the way that shape the world, you know, those are open right now. Can I ask you a question? Sure thing. Do you make those people sign a release? Absolutely. Oh, good. Absolutely. <laughs> There's a release. There's a non-disclosure agreement. There's a host of paperwork um, okay. that you have, to, you have to go through. You know, you understand that you are releasing the rights to this. This is how uh, the symbiote Spider-Man suit was made, I think. And, you know, this is, this is the thing that happened. There was a contest. You write in, hey, you got a design, boom, there it is. You, you, say, you release it, boom, there it is. Now, that's, um, that is the opportunity that's being afforded if you really want to get involved. Right. But you know why I asked. Are you there? I am. Liability? Yeah. No, yeah, exactly. You know, because you know how people are. Oh, man, you know, you, you strike it big. Sony wants to pay you $10 million to license what you've done, you know, blah, 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 and somebody comes along, yeah, yeah but that's my character in there. And then, and then you have to go through that rigmarole. You have to send somebody like me over to the guy's house to bust a cap in his head, and, oh, and yeah. nobody wants to do that. Nobody yeah. wants to have to shoot somebody so that they can retain their own intellectual oh, yeah. property. Oh, yeah. yeah but there, anyway. There's, there's a um, paperwork. You know, so, like, I'm all about the paperwork. I have, um, I have lawyers, um, uh, media, uh, multimedia lawyers, entertainment lawyers that I talk to um, that give me this advice, uh, one that represents me directly. And um, you got to have this stuff in order, man. Sure, sure. And, like, um, even even so, if you okay. don't have the stuff patented, if you have ideas, before you get those ideas or before you start sending stuff to people to, to get reviewed, you need to make sure all of your legal stuff is together. Because if you send a um, comic to a review person to get, to, you know, to, yep. to get it reviewed and you don't have your legal yep. stuff in order, they can take it. They yep. can take it. But, I'm, you know, poor man, I'm about, yeah. price, you have all this other stuff. You, have, you could fight it, but if they have more resources than you and they want to fight longer than you do, that might be it for you. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I'm getting ready to trademark a uh, a saying for a T-shirt, and you know, okay. obviously, I'm not going to say what it is. But nobody else has trademarked it, and you know, it's going to it's going to be a really big deal when certain books come out. So, you know, again, people go, well, well, why why would you do that? Why would you spend all that money? And I say because I'm protecting my intellectual property. Oh, well, yeah. even if somebody you know, steals that you have to go after them. I said, yeah, but, you know, a cease and desist doesn't cost that much. And, again, you know, I, I still believe that assassination is a viable form of political change. So probably I'm the wrong person to be messing with. But, but still you have to be protected. And a lot of people don't want to spend that money up front for an intellectual property lawyer, mm-hmm. and they don't realize the danger in, in going cheap, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, the poor man's yeah. copyright is a thing, and it can work. It has won cases, but um, if they want to fight you, they'll fight you. Yeah, they will. And, and, and it, it, it then it really becomes ugly. a battle of attrition. Then it becomes mm-hmm. a battle of attrition. Absolutely. Um, okay, we're, we're down to about uh, the last – well, no, we're going to actually go over. Um, anyway, because we started late. Anyway, uh, I want to ask you this. Um, as you look at where you are right now, have you thought about where you might be? Because I always ask where you might be, let's say, five years from now. Five years now from now, I want to be running some sort of multimedia group. I want comics with multiple 
um, multiple titles running. I want multiple teams running. I want I want a seat at the table. That's what I want. I want okay. a seat at the table. I want to be a guy, whether I'm the guy at Marvel, the guy at DC, or the guy at my own company. I want to be a guy. You know, like because it. I want this to be profitable. You know, it's personal, right. but I also want to be profit. Profit is a thing because you do stuff because you love it, but you also have to make money. You know, right. So I'm a, I'm right. in the process now of uh, talking to some people who are like you know they're interested in having their um, having their works picked up under some kind of umbrella company or something. We have to figure out all the particulars, but you know I would like to have a connected universe with other creators and, and you know um, do cameos and things like that. So I want to be more into the business side of it. Of course, by then in my mind I'm already finished with my graduate school. I'm already teaching. Right. Maybe I'm in administration or leaning toward administration at this point. You know, something is happening, and I'm good on that side. I'm, I'm more financially stable. I'm financially stable now, but, you know, you can always be more financially stable. You know, money mm-hmm, never, mm-hmm. money is always money good. Is you know, but all, all money is not good money, but good money you can always use. So, you know, I'm, Dave I'm just Chappelle, trying to. Dave Chappelle said something really funny. You know, he was on, I think he was on with David Letterman. And so, you know, they were talking about how he turned down that $50 million. Mm-hmm. And and Dave Chappelle, you know, uh, uh, no, um, Letterman asked him, well, don't you, aren't you, aren't you going to miss that $50 million? And Dave Chappelle said, and we thought we were going to get something really profound. He says the difference between $20 million and $50 million is 30 fucking <laughs> million dollars. And so, hmm. you know, the, the, his message was, yes, there's a lot of money to be made out there, but once you get past a certain threshold, it, it becomes, I guess, like gravy or something. You know, it's kind of like an extra added bonus. But yeah. it sounds to me like you've done a lot of your pre-planning. I mean, for you to have everything ready in the event that a bus hits you, that's pretty forward thinking. I don't know anybody else I've ever spoken to who's made that level of preparation for a disaster. You know, you well, can't I'm, call I'm, it I'm a family man. I'm a, I, don't have, I don't have a family like a wife or kids, but I am a family-oriented person. If uh-huh. this makes any kind of money, if this gives any kind of fame, I want my family to have that, you know. To benefit, so, sure. You know, I want them to benefit from it. I want them to be able to continue to benefit from it. I want the money that makes money that makes money that makes money. You know, if I can right. make uh, multimedia my family business, that's my goal. Uh, okay, so basically you're looking to make um, sort of the free, you know, the company that handles that, a transmedia company all the way around where you've got multiple genres, you've got multiple right. Uh, art streams. You you are really you're really milking the intellectual property to to be available, you know, so that there's no reason for someone to say, nah, it's too much trouble to look at this. It's too much trouble to download that. Oh, it's too much trouble to log right. in. You're just you're going to say, oh no no no, it's not because whatever your your particular channel is, I got something for you. You know, I have a million stories in my head. But the the biggest thing to go back to one of your things you said earlier is to when it when it got done I said I wanted to just do one I have so many concepts and so many characters and so many worlds and things like that and I've started works I started a novel um, 
but it's unfinished. I will not finish project. Now I said, I'm going to stop and I want to put everything I have into one project. Mm-hmm. And I'm going mm-hmm. to finish that and have a tangible product to put in people's hands when it is said and done. And it was kind of wow. like, you know, it's, it's, it's about the comic, but it's also about me, about actually finishing the thing you start. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you this. Like I said, what if Sony comes to you and says, hey, we want to buy this out from under you. We want to take, you know, we want to buy it, take control of it, and take it completely off your hands. You know, if, if it's a mature product, and they're offering you a decent amount of money. Let's just say they're going to offer you $10 million, which anybody could retire on if they're not stupid. Right. Um, uh, so how do you, I mean, how proprietary do you feel about it? I know now because it's new and because you're in the most exciting phase of creativity, you know, being able to build your empire, that's one thing. But let's say it's 10 years down the road and, you know, you're, you're really thinking, you've got all these other stories in your head, is it going to be hard for you to let go, or do you think you're going to be able to do that knowing that you could write any damn thing you want to and, and, and get to the same place where you are with the thing that they want to buy? Do you see what I'm asking? How, oh, absolutely, how, absolutely. There's a, a concept yeah. um, in art school that we learned, and that is, to, as morbid as it sounds, you have to be able to kill your baby. You have to be able yes. to yes. put your baby down and, and dispatch it right then and there for whatever reason. And in this sense, it's about, you know, if, you, if you're if you an artist and you draw, you know, half a figure, but, you know, you did something wrong earlier and it's kind of thrown off the rest of your piece, you have to be willing to ball that whole thing up and throw it away and start over. Even though, yeah. like, you know, some, some artists get caught up because, like, oh, my God, man, this hand is so good, though. His hand is so good. I don't want to, you know, and hands are hard. So you draw a good hand, you want to keep it. But honestly, right. to ensure the quality of your product and to make sure that you get the best thing you can, you've got to be able to get rid of it. And so to me, already built into my creative process is the contingency that I may have to let it go. Sure. For profit. Sure. You know, if I, if, if I could sacrifice Jim and sort of the free, make $10 million and, you know, use that to as a springboard to do other creative works, you know, I look at my character and I say, I think that's what he would have wanted. Well, and so that's, I, I, that's a good forward-thinking business way of looking at it. You know, a lot of people clutch their, their intellectual property like it's their baby or their pet, and they, mm-hmm. they are reluctant to let go. You know, and I and I don't know what the reason are. Maybe because they they're really attached to it. Maybe because they don't think they've got another. You know, that lightning will strike again if they're thinking that right. way. But yeah, but dude, that's that's really that's a really progressive way to think about about your you know your creativity and your art. I really I, I want that more than anything. I want that seat, man. Like to be honest, if. If uh, Paramount or Sony or somebody like that approached me and was like, we'll give you $50,000 for this story and all the rights, I would be like, well, that's kind of like salary for a year, which is cool, but I would rather get a position somewhere. Let let me in the industry. You can let me in the industry, give me a seat at the table, and you can keep the money for now. For now, you can keep the money. Yeah. But 
when I get the position and I prove myself again and again and again, I want that seat. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, somebody had two, two different production companies have at least made inquiries about adapting my Dark Side trilogy to either the small or the big screen. And if they adapt it to the small screen, I'm going to insist on a writing credit for every episode because essentially that's like thirty to 50000 bucks in my pocket for every single episode, which makes sense. You know, I should be able to benefit from my own creativity like that. If they do the movies, then it's going to be a different figure and it's going to be a different thing. You know, I'm not, obviously I'm not going to get points on the back end of that. But, you know, again, what I've done, what you've done, you know, what we have sweated out has value and we should, mm-hmm. we should benefit from that, mm-hmm. you know. So, yeah, yeah it's, it, it's a tough thing. You know, and a lot of people won't let go. A lot of people go, oh, I, I you know, this is mine. Or, or they'll, they'll really mess it up. They'll go, yeah, you could, you could buy this from me, but I insist on being on set, you know, for rewrites. Oh, nobody's going to go for that because writers yeah. are little troll-type people who are desperate yeah. and you well, know, nobody wants them do, around. What, what these companies do, they'll wanna take your, they're going to take your, your IP and they're going to give it to a group of people to say slaughter it anyway. They're going right. to say, well, we, right. have, we like this idea. But we we want to have you guys, you know, like say let's say CW takes Sword of the Free, right? CW sure. will take Sword of the Free, and before they're done with it, it will be a story about an emo teenage uh, ninja who <laughs> can't control his powers and has all these friends, but is mean to them because you know he has all these uh, teen angst and stuff like that. And I'll be like, you right. know what? That that they bought it. That's what it is. You do what you want yeah. to do. It. It's yours. You know, it'll it'll be like Flash and Arrow and then Sword of the Free and then each one of the shows, you know, all all those shows are written by the same group of people. And that's why they all oh, feel sure. so similar. And so yeah. they would put their spin on it and it would be teenage angst with superpowers. And all you do is you issue a, a press release, you know, divorcing yourself from that stuff to say, why not read the book, <laughs> the, the book or the comic book anyway? Yeah. Right. I'd say, you uh, know, um, Read the book is all I'll say. You know, I look at like Robert Kirkman and um, what he's done with The Walking Dead uh, right. comic versus The Walking Dead show. And people love The Walking Dead. It's all good, fine, and well, but it is watered down compared to the comic. You know, well, of like, course, but they could it, they could never get that on the air. I don't. I mean, true. I, I think that might be true in some respects, but it depends on the network. If they went to HBO, that'd be on the air. Oh, absolutely, you know, absolutely. You know, yeah, you, you, couldn't, you can't put it on, you know, network TV. But well, you know, if you put that on one of those, like you know, Cinemax, HBO, Showtime, they'll do it. Mm-hmm. Like they mm-hmm. that their whole niche is to specifically do these messed up shows that you can't put on regular TV. And so, now, look how many people bought, got HBO when The Sopranos was on. Just oh, to watch yeah. that show, oh, yeah. you know, and yeah. and if you if your show makes a big enough splash, yeah, you're going to get a a a a premium channel to buy it because they yeah. know they're going to make money off of it. I got HBO just to watch Game of Thrones, and I know people who watch Game of Thrones religiously, and I mean, this got you know all of this sex stuff, all of this like incest and killing and murdering, decapitation, you know, it it you you. Like twenty years ago, you would look at Game of Thrones and be like, "That's never getting on TV." That's that dude. Yeah. This dude is yeah. having sex with his sister. That's not going to be on TV. But here we are, Game of Thrones. 
Well, and the other thing is, is people if people are paying for it, you can put anything you want in there. Because oh, yes, they the market, they the market will determine, you know, yeah. whether or not it gets seen. And this is why I say, like, a lot of people are upset now because um, they say, oh, well, now y'all care about black narratives because Black Panther did so well. It's like, you know, there's never been anything like this before. Black Panther's, like, breaking all these records. You know, the the Hollywood myth was that black stuff wouldn't sell like that. And then you say you couldn't sell you couldn't sell black stories overseas, but it's doing well overseas, you know, creeping up on billions and stuff like that. And so the issue is Hollywood cares about what works and what makes money. Now, yep. you're going to see more black stories now, more black heroes, more Afrocentric stories, because they, they look at the market right now, and there's a market for it. You know, yep. they, they, sell, they sell the quintessential white man heroes because that's what sells, you know. They'll try something. They try to – I would say I would give Hollywood credit. They try to put out, you know, more Afrocentric stories sometimes, but it doesn't always catch. When it catches, it catches. They, they care about well, the dollar about it. And, yeah. and when you show them that there's money in this, they're going to come. Well, the hint was, you know, I, I keep mentioning this, but the hint was when Luke Cage broke Netflix. Broke it. That, tore it up. Yeah. And, and so – for two days, white folks couldn't get their Luke Cage, and they were upset, you know, and, Bro, and they couldn't I, blame I it on even, us because – go ahead. I couldn't watch Netflix. I tried, and, you know, it was funny. <laughs> I cut on Netflix. Netflix wouldn't work. Right. And you know what? I wasn't even mad. I was like, go ahead, Luke. Do your thing, boy. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and you know, I, I also bring this up. Uh, it was either two or three years ago, November, where a study came out that showed that Movies that had uh, um, multiracial casts made more mm-hmm. money. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that that's the magic. That's the magic phrase right there. Mm-hmm. You know, it, 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 if it makes more money, it's going to happen. Yeah, and whether it's, it's, it's a damn, it's a damn, whether it's yeah, trans, damn, whether it's gay, yep. whether it's whatever, it doesn't matter. They want the demographic. Yep, and it's a damn shame that the tail has to wag the dog. But you know what? At this point, however it happens, is is exactly. a good thing. Exactly, yeah. I'm right with I'm right there with you. Like I look at I look at the demographics and I look at the market and how the market moves and stuff like that. And you can always you know when you look at it long enough and you see like a thing that comes out and you see the public response, you can be like, oh okay, they, they're going to start doing this now because people mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. you know. So like I remember I, I remember when the Cheerios commercial came out. That had the black um, had the black man with the biracial girl. And he was laying on the right. couch or whatever, and it was the biracial girl. And everybody thought that she was just so cute. It was a white man, I forget. Uh, anyway, the girl was biracial, so the girl was biracial. She had her little curly hair going, and everything was great. Everybody loved it, except well, a lot of people didn't love it, and they actually had to shut the comment sections down on the YouTube video because of all the racial slurs. But that yep. too gets attention, and attention gets money. So then everybody yes, else, all the other companies and commercials start putting biracial children in their commercials. You know, it mm-hmm. like the, you know, even if they didn't weren't actually biracial, they had the stereotypical biracial look, you know, and so they were like, We just want that look, we want the curly hair, we want the tan skin, get it in there. I've looked at actual right. casting uh casting sheets that were talking about specifically getting the child with the biracial look. You know, okay. biracial, biracial uh, looking child must have curly hair. You know, these are the these are the mandates that I would see on the casting sheet. So, yeah. you know, those those markets, man, they move. 
that they target different groups, and it's like that new money, that fresh money, that that surge of money, like the black dollar right now. You know, it that they're gonna want it, and they're gonna cater to it. Yeah. Sorry, but, the people upstairs are banging on on. I don't know, they're hammering or something. I'm tempted to shoot a bullet through the floor, but that's impolite. Anyway, um, we're we're just about running out of time because TalkShoe will cut us off. But, um, uh, oh, man, you know, I've I've had a ball, you know. I don't know about you, Frank. Okay, good, because um, definitely, you know, as as you go further and further into the process, I definitely want us to keep track of you. And now let me ask you this. Do you you plan on spending any time at uh, conventions? Oh, the way I plan this thing out is I want to do the Kickstarter first to give people exclusive uh, content and unique access to the project. So the more sure. access, you know, the more the higher the players, the more access you have. And when you get to when the Kickstarter is completed, the, the, the support from the community was phenomenal. We were successfully funded within 72 hours. So, it was mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. you know, the goal, the goal was a small goal, but, you know, you people choose to spend their money like they choose to. So you can't just say, oh, well, I only asked for a couple thousand dollars, you know, so, you know, that'll be easy because it's not easy. I actually have a friend who just didn't meet his goal, and he only had a few thousand up. And, you know, it's a real bummer when you don't meet that goal and you have all the people behind you and you have this passion and you don't meet goals. So I was thrilled to see the goal met. Once the Kickstarter is complete, because the Kickstarter backers, they're going to get the book first. That's the exclusivity. They're going to get the book first. They're going to get it in their hands first. They're going to get the bonus content first. And after that, that's when I'm going to try to get the mass production going. Um, I'm printing right now with uh, Kablam. And they're mm-hmm. a pretty good outlet. But if I can find somebody in the same quality with less uh, less expensive uh, costs, I might try to shop around a little bit more for that. But I've shopped at, like, the mom-and-pop printer shop, and it, it felt like the mom-and-pop version when I got the uh, pre- the the, uh, the proof of the book, and I was like, oh, no, this is, the, the colors aren't good. Like, I can't do this. So needless to say, after the Kickstarter, the campaign is going to be to hit the cons and hit them hard. Oh, cool. Okay. So that, that gets your name out. It also puts you around other people who do what you do. So it's, it's always, always a good thing. You know, I didn't, I didn't used to go to conventions because I thought that they were going to be a waste of my time. And I keep saying this, you know, Jarvis finally made me go to my first one. And my first one was a Worldcon. And, and now I'm hooked, you know. So this year I've got about three or four I'm going to go to. Next year uh, I, I'm already booked for two in uh, 2019. So, yeah, it, it does make a difference, and it raises your visibility. And sometimes that's what you need because the big challenge for uh, entrepreneur content creators like you and me is raising your visibility above the background noise. So that's always a good thing. Um, Frank, I want to thank you for being here, man. I don't, I don't know what Jarvis is doing. I don't know if he's uh, eating yeah. wings or downstairs <laughs> having pizza or whatever, but he'll be here in a second. But um, well, I, I, I appreciate you, you good... having me, man. I did. Yeah, oh, I did. No. I had a blast, man. I appreciate it. Um, and that moment that you've had already, because you, you said you, you've got about nine books or seven books, seven books? I've got I, – I have three that are out, and I have – no, I have four that are out, and I have – 
three or four more coming out this year. So that is crazy. Um, like the to be able to stack the first book next to the second book and the third book, that's the feeling that I want. You know what I'm saying? Like when I hit the cons, I only got one book to sell now. But then like next to, next year I hit the cons, I'll have two books to right. sell. You know, book one and book two is now available. Book one and book two and book three are now available. And you know, that's that's a feeling I can't wait to have. Yeah, it, it does feel good. And you know what? I I was uh, applying for a grant. You know, there's this uh, there's this um, organization that will actually give you up to $50,000 so that you can spend all your time creating and not worrying hmm. about paying your bills. And one of the things that I had to do for it was a resume of my work. Hmm. And as I was putting it together, because I do both film and um, – and and books, so I do you know scripts and things like that. As I was putting it together, I I really hadn't realized how much I had actually accomplished because I never think of it as a mm. whole big ass body of work. Yes. I think about yes. oh yeah, I wrote the I wrote the Dark Side trilogy, and that was it. So well, like here's um, the here's the the crazy part about that the Dark Side trilogy, your book, like there are classical writers who have have classes at universities now who have done less than you did, you know, and yeah. they, also, they died poor and their work was not recognized when they were alive. But, you know, like you're, you're doing that. You're doing the thing and you're alive and you see it and you see people throwing the love back at you and you're seeing the revenue coming in now. Like it's like, it's, it's a, a, a crazy concept to look at the fact that you have three books out available now. That a full trilogy, yeah. I was I was fine until I talked to your ass about you know preparing for death and getting your paperwork in order and stuff like that. Now I you know now my whole weekend is shot. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, I just like to I like to you know be prepared. My boy Scott, I guess. Oh yeah, no no. Now, like my, I got a nephew. I got I don't have any kids, but I have a nephew, and my nephew loves Sword of the Free. Because right. the the thing that the thing that kills me is when he looked at it and he said, Man, he looked like me and I said, Oh yeah. God, little child, you have no idea how important that is. Because like yeah. what you're saying right now, I didn't have that. Right. You know, I I had to imagine Spider Man, you know, with a black face behind it, you know, and whenever he put the mask on. And so seeing the black characters like get love like they are now for a classic mm-hmm. character like myself. It, it, it's powerful because you got Black and Lightning on Tuesday with two girls yeah. being superheroes and Black Panther breaking all kind of records. And I think um, Ava, I think, um, I forget her last name, but the lady uh, who did a Wrinkle in Time. Wrinkle in Time, uh, she, right. Yeah, she just got tapped to be due to do New God. You know, yeah. so she'll be, yeah, she'll be doing, uh, well, I have issues with that, but I, I still like the Black Excellence. You know, I like the Black well, Faces well, the fact- and Black Places. yeah. The fact that we're getting opportunities that we've never had before is very right. significant. You know, right. they may not be exactly your cup of tea, my cup of tea, this, that, or the other thing, but damn, you know, 10 years ago, none of this would have been possible. Right. That's 10 like years a woman, ago, let alone well, a black woman, years, yeah. even crazy. Yeah. yeah, and look at, look at uh, George Lucas when he did uh, Red Tails. Mm-hmm. He, couldn't, he couldn't get anyone in Hollywood pony up any money for that and had to self-fund that entire movie because yeah. nobody thought that a movie with an all-black cast was going to have legs. And that and here was we are that now. long ago. Yeah, right. exactly. That's what the thing about so, it is. 
he had been trying to, to make red sales for a long time and could not find anybody to do it. Right. Exactly. Hold on a minute. Jarvis, would, would you get your butt upstairs, please? You know, because he, oh, there he is, because he, he has to close out the show. Anyway, hey. let's do this, because we're, we're, we're at uh, uh, 15 minutes after, and we could get cut off. But, but, Frank, man, this has been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed talking to you, and I hope you had a good time. And, Likewise, and we do want to try to get you back. And Absolutely. Jarvis, uh, Hello, Jarvis, you again. Hello. Hello. Yeah, Hello. yeah, yeah, we can hear you. But oh, um, great. You, you pulled out another great guest for us, and thank you for that. And go well, ahead and, you, and say thank your you. piece. Oh, I just want to thank everyone responsible for being part of this, uh, guest, host, and all the participants, as always. And it's, it's always a great experience getting the um, knowledge of how other people are creating their work and sharing it with um, with our members. Uh, with that said, I'm going to keep it short and sweet, and I'm going to revert back to old school with uh, love, peace, and hair grease. Well, thank you very much. Um, ha- hang on just for a couple of minutes after we finish the show, Frank, in case anybody has some last-minute questions for you, okay? Sure thing. All right. Okay. I want to thank everybody who listened live. All of you, you you do make the day go well or the evening go well. We get to see your comments and things like that. I also want to thank those of you who picked this up as a podcast because knowing that there are people who want to check out what we're doing, whether they can make it here on a Friday night or not, is also a good thing. So I want to thank everybody for being here. I hope to see everyone back here next Friday where we'll have a brand-new guest. So have a good evening, everybody, and we'll talk to you next week. All right. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.